surely everyone knows there's a group of people who, for whatever reason, whether of conscience, whether of um, just their iron will, they just decided that it's not for them to take these uh, new treatments, right? These new vaccines. Don't they deserve and aren't they entitled to public health advice? Should they not know, for example, everything we've just looked at there with the vitamin D? Or what about the... um, the idea that, you know, obesity is a risk factor. We know that SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, likes to infect human uh, adipose tissue. Um, in the work I've done, I've looked into, and I've seen there's a study, um, I think it was Kaiser Permanente from California, a uh, large study, they looked at 50,000 people, and they tried to find just statistical association, you know, people who don't fare well with COVID, I think the endpoint was mortality. What was the highest risk factor where most of the people um, seem to have, and it was actually obesity. Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Chatter. Before we get started, I just have a few quick messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way that you can help us grow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's going to help us rank higher and get more and more views and therefore bigger and better guests. Links for everything will be in the description below. So please enjoy the podcast. Before we start this podcast, I just want to give a short disclaimer. The opinions expressed within may not represent the majority of scientists on COVID-19 or the medical consensus on several issues. What we are trying to do is look at government sources to best understand the situation we are in. That's the only way we're going to move forwards, is by understanding where we're at. And in that, we explored some areas that might be considered controversial. However, we have done our best to try to explore them with intellectual honesty. And that is all I can really ask from myself and my guests. So I hope you forgive us if we make any mistakes. Please enjoy the show. Right. Let's do this, man. Let's get banned from YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good to me. Uh, I mean, that is a genuine fear that I have yeah. about this episode, but um, I feel it's got to the point where I can say these things on yeah. on a podcast and we can we can talk about it without people screaming at us for being, yeah. you know, grandparent killers or yeah, uh, yeah. COVID deniers yeah. or um, any of the associated things like that. Um, yeah, it sounds good. So um, basically, the thing that I am here to talk to you about is the COVID desk classification, the PCR tests, and the yellow card reporting data. Um, all of these things have been kind of at the at the center of 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 debates that that have been going on, but then people haven't exactly acknowledged that there was a discussion happening about it. And and the the amount of times that I saw this through the pandemic. And and just try to try to like really get a handle on like how how realistic this data was and how um how yeah for example the, how the deaths were being classified whether this was um, whether we were over classifying it whether we were under classifying it and and the whole time I just I struggled to figure out what was what what was the answer here I mean I didn't trust what the the government and the the media were how they were interpreting interpreting the data. But at the same time, I was struggling to find people for whom I could say, yes, okay, 
they have explained it in a way that seems plausible, reasonable, isn't alleging some monstrous conspiracy yeah. that people can just like dismiss out of hand and more talks about like the individual institutional level decisions that have led to these things being potentially inaccurately classified so jonathan i'm here with you today so you can clear all these problems up um so welcome to the show <laughs> sounds very good it's great to be here josh no problem so um actually why don't you just give us an idea of, of, of who you are and like what your background is and, and what your education is and just so people can understand like where you're coming from on this. Sure. Well, my name is Jonathan Weissman and I'm a cybersecurity professional with background in uh, software development and also my undergraduate was in mathematics. So I've got quite an analytical approach towards things and really my interest was piqued when I saw essentially the problem of the safety of the new vaccines as essentially being a problem of risk management. The population is being asked to make a decision on new technology and I thought from my professional um, background I had something to offer there because I felt that the debate and the discussion had been massively oversimplified and not enough um, sort of serious data and information had been presented to people so I wanted to really sort of get into that and explore it. Okay, so then when did you start diving into the figures and what were you coming at this from like a purely statistical analysis um, level of things? Not so much. Um, I know quite a few people who are heavily involved in the statistics and the numbers. For me, I was really interested in the sort of biological aspect of, you know, as I said, the vaccines, what's going on in the human body. I am also very interested to know what the government's rationale is for everything because essentially everything they're doing is driven from data we know governments love data and statistics and so i am tracking um you know, many of the things they're saying in their political maneuvers um, my interest mostly lies with the sort of biological side okay so um have you been did you study like science in in any form or biology or virology well so i mean i studied biology chemistry physics as a, as a, a school um, until a level and then my speciality was mathematics got a, a undergraduate degree and then my two master's degrees are in applied mathematics which included some um, statistical modeling and applied use of mathematics which i think gives you that sort of broad ability to be very logical rational to not be easily led by you know one study or one train of thought and, and that's really what i what I tap into over the last six months or even one year, that's where I've started to acquire a, a sort of base level understanding of, you know, immunology, virology, enough to be able to interpret um, what's going on, I think, to an extent. Mm. Okay, so the, but the main the main thing here is that like, you're you're trying to run through the that we're trying to run through the data that's being presented to us and has been presented as justifications for um, a number of policies in the past. Uh, thankfully, as of tomorrow, hopefully, um, it's all going to be gone, mostly. But then the, the the issue still remains underlying is like, w were all of these decisions based on faulty data? And that is the the area that I'm keen to address in this podcast, because it's something that I have become very concerned that we're trying to make huge policy decisions that like outrageously far-reaching um, impact upon like not just right now but future generations upon children's development upon um, just e economic 
economic development. Like, it's not so callous. Be like, oh, do you just care about the economy, bro? And it's like, no, the economy is people's fucking jobs and lives and livelihoods. So that is why I care. But anyway, um, the first thing we're going to go over here is the COVID death classification. So, yeah. Do, would you like to explain to people how the COVID deaths have been, yeah, yeah, classified then for for us so we can we can start the discussion about this sure well as i'm sure many people know it's all comes down to this um positive test result the pcr which we might um get to speak about in a bit i guess the first thing to say is if you if you think about what they say now which is you know a death with covid so the government have actually softened and relaxed the language a little bit they used to talk at the beginning in in 2020 much more of you know died of covid these numbers and now and probably due to pressure from lots of um, sort of people asking the question, they've really softened that language. So that's a very important thing to note. And then the second thing with that is, you know, these deaths with COVID, so this is COVID on the death certificate, um, are not necessarily the same as uh, COVID as the underlying factor, even if um, there's been a, um, a test result. So I know we've got some data we can um, have a look into it in a moment. Um, and that actually really shows that even the government um, here in Northern Ireland are really only claiming 86.9% of the near three and a half thousand COVID-19 deaths as actually having uh, COVID-19 as the underlying uh, factor that then starts that chain of reaction leading to um, mortality. And then one other point I would also like to raise, and again, it, it touches on the PCR test, is really the idea that if you get hospitalized with anything, and remember, it could be totally unrelated to uh, the progression of the COVID um, disease symptoms. So, for example, um, an accident in the home or in the workplace, you may have um, more than one test uh, for COVID during the stay of your hospitalization. And it's, you know, attaining that one test result. Mm. That's what's going to stick with you. And I do hear anecdotally of people who are exposed to at multiple tests and it certainly sounds like there's a desire for a positive test result um to, to be logged against them which mm. doesn't make a huge amount of sense mm. um so there's a few factors there i i think are worth worth thinking about okay well i mean don't come in here with your anecdotal evidence man like this is <laughs> that is just misinformation obviously <laughs> right exactly uh, <laughs> exactly we all live in a vacuum now yes so. exactly like anecdotes are no longer at, like in any way applicable you know, you can't say anything anecdotally because that's, you know, not backed up by the science. Um, yeah, I'm totally going to get banned for this. <laughs> but anyway, um, the so the the classification of this, so in we'll get to that 86% figure in just a minute um, that you mentioned because I want to go over that. Yeah. But um, the thing, that the, the issue for me basically is that, like, I don't... I've seen that this 150-something thousand has been touted for the whole of the UK as right, the number yeah. of people who died within 28 days of a positive test. And I think the number is over 170,000 for people who are classified within 60 days of a positive test. Yeah. I'm not sure why we have the two different figures, but that's, you know, people people like to tout the highest one because they want Boris Johnson to sound like he's done the worst possible job. Right. Um, it's nothing, so it doesn't seem to be anything to do with like trying to figure out what the real figure was. Because I don't, I've also seen the ONS have released that data that says there's 17,000 people have died with only COVID on their death certificate in the past two years. So it's like 9,000 last year and like 8,000 uh, in 2021. 
Yep. Something around that. I don't think either figure are, are, are really like a good way of understanding how many people have died. Like, again, we're we're not talking like we're just talking from this specific disease because the yeah you know, the the effects from from many other things that come around this are not really being sort of explored and whether you know people would have died otherwise or not is 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 almost impossible to figure out so we stick to the numbers we can like talk about but the number like people definitely died who wouldn't have having contracted COVID, even if they had underlying conditions maybe that was like five ten years of life they would have had extra the same thing could have happened if they'd got the flu or some other respiratory illness but the reality is that like people died who wouldn't have and that's basically what we're trying to figure out here so to that, 86%, you said, of people have have died. And that that's, yeah. So let's pull this up for us, actually. And you can talk us through the data that we're looking yes, at. This is the data from NISA, I believe, um, the Northern Ireland Statistics and Research Agency. Yeah. So it's sort of, yeah, the local data here in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, if this would work, that would be lovely. <laughs> Keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. well, I'll get it to work in a second. Yeah, that, that, there it is for us, good. but I'm yeah. trying to get up on the screen for people who are watching. There we go. Lovely. Okay, so here we are. Yeah, so, I mean, as we mentioned there, even just these kind of highlights, just, just bring out some of what we've sp spoken about. I guess, you know, the first point I mentioned a little bit early, earlier was um, in that second paragraph that, you know, 86.9% are where COVID is 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 being claimed as the underlying cause of death. So if you think about the the rest of them, so that's you know just over four hundred and fifty deaths or something. The the, the remainder. This is for Northern Ireland. For Northern Ireland only. Yeah, exactly. They're not even claiming for those ones that COVID was a was a causal factor um, in it. It was just um, coincidental. So again, it's kind of like, well, if you really know that COVID didn't um, you know cause the death then you really shouldn't be reporting in, in those kind of numbers. I mean, you know, you have an idea in, in, in medicine and obviously beyond that, um, when the patient dies of the idea of the autopsy and working out, you know, causes of death and, and whether you need to investigate something or there's some sort of an issue um, to, to be addressed there. And, and so, you know, when you're dealing with essentially a pandemic, when you're dealing with a public health situation, you know, it is appropriate to go back and start revise, start you know figuring out what these numbers truly mean. So it is good of them to at least have have put that there. But really, you know, why are we still tracking with you know all the so-called COVID deaths when we already know um, the ones where it was an underlying uh, um, um, factor? I, I think you know that that's kind of an interesting thing. And then secondly, you see this idea, and this holds up pretty well across the UK. This idea that. Only 10.3% of the COVID deaths um, actually had no pre-existing conditions. And remember, this is very important because most of the fear and most of the hysteria at the beginning of the pandemic around COVID is really around this idea, you know, you're healthy, you're perfectly fine, and COVID comes and sweeps you away. And you can see there only 311 uh, deaths between March 2020 and September 2021 uh, in that category. Mm. I think the figure for Scotland is around 7.1%. And I think that you're going to find that's going to hold up pretty similarly across the UK. Okay. And obviously, you can see the third point as well. Um, on average, the number of pre-existing conditions is is 2.5. So, so that's your average sort of COVID patient. We know the average age of death is around 82, 83. So, you know, I think... Um, some key points there, I would say, in terms of, 
getting a sense of really what's going on in terms of, um, you know, who is sadly passing away and the typical COVID patient. Mm. Okay, so that's really interesting, man. That's 10, only, so that's that's pretty consistent that they're saying that only 10% of deaths were without um, any pre-existing conditions. Is that broken down by age um, um, anywhere? If I it, if I scroll down, do you know or or it, is that it's just... not a particularly extensive document. You can have a look. I don't think it breaks down um, too much. I think these are amongst the only graphs actually in this particular document. There may be there may be others. This is one I picked because um, it's from Nizra. Um, it's it's a pretty th slim pickings really in terms of what they give. Hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, you can see some age, but again, and this is very interesting, actually. Ah, here it is. This is exactly what I wanted. Yeah. Perfect. What I was going to say, you notice, though, with the um, the bucketing of the ages, they've got the zero to 59. <laughs> now, That's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I can tell a quick story on this, actually. Um, this bucketing of data is exactly what uh, Professor Fenton's been dealing with. He He's a professor, I think, uh, at one of the universities in London. I think it might be Queen Mary. And he's been looking into all-cause mortality. So he's trying to answer the question, is are more people dying who are vaccinated or unvaccinated? A slightly different question. And what they did for him with the ONS data is the same thing. They gave him 0 to 59, which makes it very difficult if you're trying to understand this type of data. Um, so you can see there again. Is this, this, sorry, just to yeah. clarify, this is is this across the whole of the UK? I think this whole paper uh, generally has been for for Northern Ireland. But just because that's like, why is this? Because like, it says figure four proportion of COVID deaths without pre-existing conditions, but there's three thousand, and that's the number of deaths. Yes, like, the total. I think unless that's just really badly marked, in which case Nisra sort your shit out. <laughs> do you see what i mean yes i think i think this is um well we know from northern ireland that the number without a pre-existing condition is only 334 yeah. in total so if it's more than that then it's not it's not just uh, northern ireland um in fact you can see down there three or four without pre-existing conditions but it doesn't say where come on nisra this is the problem, right? This is like, no, but this is a serious, this is a serious, serious point, man. Like, here are two people, like, honestly trying to look at what's happening and honestly trying to interpret the data. And it's, it's, it's like pulling teeth. And, and you would think that, that there was so much focus, especially in, in healthcare over the past 10 years, but like science communication and, you know, making people understand. And, and, you know, we had the, we had the ability to, to, for governments to do this. And instead it's left me and you, you know, like governments could be going through these things and explaining what, what, what we're looking at. Um, Chris Whitty, they could have fucking hired someone literally to do nothing but answer questions online all day and all night. That would be a great idea, actually. But it's still a little confusing. Um, proportion of COVID deaths without pre-existing conditions. Figure four. Yeah. Why does it not say where it's from? It's really irritating. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, most of The it... main point is that, like, look at this. They fucking grouped not to 59 in. Yeah, absolutely. Which And, and just to say on this, the reason that would be important is because, um, you know, it's quite likely that that would skew more towards the older part of that age demographic, i.e. into the 50s, right? You would expect there to be fewer people who are sort of, you know, uh, you know, teens or 20s who are dying of COVID without underlying conditions. Yeah. 
But you can't tell because, you know, the idea there, when you look at it, you think, oh, well, it's a uniformly distributed across across that massive age range. But it almost certainly will not be. It will be... Yeah, it's 60 years and then five years, five years, five years, five years, five years, 90 and over. They really know how to skew, skew the graphs. I'm just trying to read here what I was saying. But anyway, so I've distracted you from your point. You were trying to make some, some good... Uh sensible piece of no no all good i was just making that point around the 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 bucketing of the data it can't um hide the fact that you know even even with um this particular graph um there's there's relatively um few people um in in that you know younger age range thankfully and and remember you know when covid first came out um we didn't know in terms of um whether younger people could be really really badly affected but thankfully you know Mostly young people are well protected thanks to their um, excellent innate immunity, um, you know, which gives them a lot, a lot of protection. Okay, I think this is just badly labelled because I've just had a read through this and it says there were 3,000 deaths registered up to where COVID was identified as the underlying cause. Um, so out of these 300, and, for these 311, out of 3,007, there were no pre- pre-existing conditions. And then... Why does this say proportion of 19 deaths with pre-existing conditions by age group? It must mean with pre-existing conditions by age group. That must be the typo, because that's the only way this makes sense. But anyway, because that's the exact number and they're saying, on yeah. Anyway, so they can't even give us the fucking actual data. Thanks, guys. But anyway, so the the main issue here is the classification. And the, the, the question becomes, like, how many of these people would have died already? And again, this is not trying to sound like callous. Yeah. It's like, how do we know that the things that we have done in response to this virus, based on the data that we have been given, wasn't horrendously damaging of a portion, of, like a portion of magnitude far greater than what would have happened had we not done anything? And that's the question that, that a lot of people have been trying to answer. And like I spoke to Paul Fritchers last year, who wrote the the Great COVID Panic. Um, and he, he, he's a well-being economist and he argued that the, the cost was 50 times outweighing the, what we were, what we were saving, which is just horrifying. So yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult situation to be in. So like, what is your sense of, of how this, how this was done? Like, was it, was it panicking? Was it, you know, what, what led us to this position where every death was classified as a COVID death? Well, I mean, from the early days, you know, there was a lot of um, media attention towards COVID from, um, you know, television adverts and radio broadcasts and everything, trying to constantly message around it. Um, I mean, there are, you know, over 200 um, common cold causing viruses, right? Not just coronaviruses, rhinoviruses. You've also got influenza as well. So look, there's a lot of things going on. Obviously, what we hear about is is COVID because of... Um, Sadly, it can lead to very severe disease and death. So I think, again, when it comes to treatment, and we don't talk about this very much, uh, even now, you know, outpatient treatment and treatment for early intervention therapeutics receives minimal attention across the board. But actually, you know, just because there are some, you know, vaccines, let's just say that, you know, some people very strongly believe in, you know, we don't need to put all your eggs into one basket. There should be public health messaging about about other things as well. And so I think there's there's an obsession around um, COVID for perhaps political reasons, and perhaps there shouldn't be. And I think 
it's it's the same thing um you really seen throughout it's just trying to um constantly uh, keep covid relevant and make everybody think about it constantly and and going to the current times for example with the latest dominating variant which is omicron which essentially is relatively mild for for most people but there's not but there's i mean there is starting to be a little bit of a step change which is nice mm. but that's essentially what i see it's a very it's until recently anyway it's been a very narrowly focused uh discussion really it's yeah. been you know have you got covid stay at home until you're hypoxic yeah. and requiring hospitalization and take this product we're offering to you um and don't worry about early intervention treatments yeah yeah that's been it's been so bad because the it was i think it was peter mccullough on on joe yeah. rogan and he just said, look, you know, imagine you're a 55, 60-year-old man and you contract COVID. You're just told, stay at home until you can't breathe. That's it. No one says, take X, Y, Z vitamins. No one says, hey, maybe this drug could help. Yeah. No one says, you know, take lots of fluids. Like, that's that's the barest of minimums that's expected you know right. like that's what people say like when when you get the flu bed rest and fluids it's like i'm not saying that that's the fucking cure to covid what i'm saying is our early treatment response to the fucking flu is better than our response to covid and i cannot for the life of me understand why that has not been a discussion because i got i already i already got fucking half banned from youtube earlier last right, year right. for discussing the wrong kind of drug as a potential in a trial and i got banned right <laughs> for a week so and it's yeah. all there in the literature i mean you know what we're talking about you know there's before you get to the adaptive immune system from vaccination which is a reasonable target to want to um bolster so i'm not knocking some of the theory behind it even though what it's become I, I don't think is is what it's cracked up to be and certainly what what it was marketed as it was marketed remember with the 95 percent efficacy that would stop infection and transmission and that really would have put paid to covid and that hasn't happened for a number of reasons but before you get to the adaptive immune system you have the innate immune system so you have the white blood cells um you have your ability to clear a viral infection this is what children rely on very strongly the epithelial cells in the upper airways um before it causes symptoms even before you even get to uh disease causing uh, manifestations of covid you can stamp down on that virus and you might be able to boost that even through things as simple as exercise good vitamins vitamin d zinc um nac many other things again it's not saying you know Everyone who boosts the innate immune system, no one's going to get a severe case of COVID. But it is saying, well, there's a meta-analysis saying uh, with the right levels of vitamin D3, there should be no excess mortality from COVID. That's that's a peer-reviewed meta-analysis I've looked at. So we know that. I know I've read papers from um, immunologists um, from Germany in May 2020 saying no matter what, right now, um, zinc would be very, very helpful to the innate immune system. Again, it's known an effective um, uh, mechanism for inhibiting the viral replication of coronaviruses is delivering zinc into the cells. So these are not difficult concepts, um, but we don't hear a lot about them. Neither do we hear much about, you know, we talk about masks, but we don't hear about um, nasal sprays and mouthwashes, povidine, iodine, for example, or as I heard um, 
Dr. McCullough talking about the success in Bangladesh mm -hmm. of really good um, nasal and oral hygiene. Um, again, this is what we're really talking about is diversifying the public health strategy. And maybe that's a sort of softer way of looking at it rather than just, you know, it's the vaccine or it's kind of uh, natural health. Mm. It's sort of like, well, what about diversification and choice? Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, it's become quite clear, actually, that yeah. that the, the vaccines aren't stopping people getting Omicron. Right. And it's not stopping everyone from dying. Like, it seems to be stopping, like... I don't even know what the exact portion is. A portion of people from dying within a certain window of efficacy, depending on whatever variant you get and depending on what fucking batch of the vaccine you've got and depending on which vaccine you've got and where the fucking stars were aligned with Mars when, whenever you took it. But uh, <laughs> the, the this is what I wanted to get up was just this thing you mentioned there, the COVID yeah. mortality risk. And just so people, again, this is like, this is what I try to do anytime I'm having these kinds of discussions is like I pull up as much as possible in order to show, look, this is real, you know, take it, you know, interpret it as you like, but the facts that we're discussing are real. So yeah, this, I, I assume this is it. Um, yes, I will, absolutely. I will put the link for this in the description for anyone. But yeah, so here it is. Vitamin D3, D3 status, mortality rate close to zero could theoretically be achieved at 50. Uh, oh, I don't even know. I can't, I'm not sure what this means. That's a dose. <laughs> Let's go with that, right? I, I can't pretend to have like that in-depth knowledge of medical stuff but yeah the point is that you're you're talking about things that are real and the 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 the, the iodine that you were talking about as well was um and the nasal spray in bangladesh is a real situation the um the use of of the drug that shall not be named in places like um india and Uttar pradesh in japan now yeah all of these things mean that it's just baffling to me that we can't have a discussion that says this thing might also help right exactly <laughs> and 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 also you know i like to put this question out there which is you know surely everyone knows there's a group of people who for whatever reason whether of conscience whether of um just their iron will they just decided that it's not for them to take these uh, new treatments right these new vaccines don't they deserve and aren't they entitled to public health advice? Should they not know, for example, everything we've just looked at there with the vitamin D? Or what about the um, the idea that, you know, obesity is a risk factor? We know that SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, likes to infect human uh, adipose tissue. Um, in the work I've done, I've looked into and I've seen there's a study, um, I think it was Kaiser Permanente from California, uh, large study, they looked at 50,000 people and they tried to find just statistical association, you know, people who don't fare well with COVID, I think the endpoint was mortality, what was the highest risk factor where most of the people um, seem to have? And it was actually obesity was the association that they found. Um, so again, and it makes sense, as I just mentioned, with the um, human um, adipose tissue um, being infected with COVID. So these are the kind of things really that um, everyone deserves to know, really, which is just good, solid, old-fashioned public health advice. Mm, yeah, yeah, I saw a fantastic meme that was um, someone saying you should trust the science, and they said the science says it's bad to be obese, and then, <laughs> which was yeah, hilarious. But yeah, again, I got up a couple of things just to yeah, just to point out that you're totally right. Obesity is nine out of ten COVID deaths could have been could have been avoided in countries with high obesity levels, and that. That was like a suspicion of mine early on 
It's like when I looked at the deaths, I said, right, okay, where where's getting smashed? It's like Britain, America, Italy, Brazil, France, Spain, all of these like highly developed Western nations with like high levels of obesity. And to suggest that these unhealthy fucks just, like are the reason that, that loads of people died, I don't think is insane. Like, I can't pretend like I'm the healthiest person in the world, but I try. I look after myself. I like try and, you know, go to the gym, go to the sauna, like enjoy trying to eat, not lots of crap, <laughs> trying to take my vitamins. And, and to suggest that it's this binary, ridiculous thing, whereas like if you're vaccinated, you're safe. And if you're not up to date with however many boosters, you know, the government now decides you need to have then you're unhealthy it's so insane to me yeah. but it is it's it's not it's not sophisticated it's not very subtle it's essentially this is what happens when you have your politicians doing um public health to this level i mean of course there's a relationship between the two but you know this has essentially been an experiment to see what is it like if our politicians drive from the front um the public health uh, agenda for the, for the nation although just going a step beyond that, I would argue, is it really the politicians or is it actually the pharmaceuticals who are really in the in the driving seat and our politicians seem to be uh, lockstep with them? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll save that serious banning talk for a little bit later. <laughs> um, but so right, the next thing that I wanted to move on to uh, was the PCR tests because all of our data about deaths, so we've discussed how maybe some of them were poorly classified Maybe some of them could have been avoided if people had been in better shape, given better early treatment. Um, that's not even suggesting any of the the antiviral drugs that have been suggested um, or any of the new ones like Pfizer-Mectin that's um, coming out. Um, any any of those. Yeah. Just like gen, general, like making sure that you are as healthy as you could be doesn't seem like a, a crazy thing. But anyway, the, the deaths have been maybe poorly classified. But then all of that is based on the PCR test, which has, contrary to what the mainstream press will tell you, has ha there's been a lot of debate about how this test should be used, the number of cycles it should be run for, and how accurate it is as like a mass scale population wide diagnosis tool. So, yeah, do you want to do you want to lay out some of the some of the sort of these these problems that people have with the PCR test and we can we can go through them bit by bit sure so and i would say i have a pretty balanced view on the PCR test i sort of i i recognize um sort of why it's used and and the rationale behind it and i also see some of the issues so essentially what it is is you take the swab from say the nose or the throat and you're looking for a little tiny example of uh, COVID-19 RNA viral material. Now, what I won't get into is the huge debate around the, the sort of where the COVID's been isolated. There's a, there's a lot of people who get very deep into it. It's a very complicated topic. <laughs> and I'm not really uh, somebody who's looked into it massively. Mm. Um, so I'm going to park that to one side. But just to mention that for the, for the record. This is, you, you know who I'm addressing here. I won't even say your name, but like... A friend of mine has been very deep on this, and I he hasn't sold me on it yet. But he's been, he, right. he'll he'll be interested to know that we're actually yeah that, that you think that there's a discussion about it at least. Right, because it, <laughs> well, if if essentially you're a person who 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 is adamant that because 
you can't see the correct isolated form of it the purified form you know you can make an argument right there that the whole thing is is garbage right yeah. that, that's that's one approach that's one argument <laughs> but but I, but I think um you know it, it's something that it's not the kind of way of looking at it that i particularly have chosen to but i do know others who do so yeah well i mean the, the thing for me is like there's there's and what explains you know the people ended up in hospital like i had covid like i know what that feels like that wasn't it was a fucking heavy, heavy ass flu, and everyone around me got the same thing. And we see, like, you can see that the NHS and other um, hospital systems were at certain points overwhelmed. Definitely, like whether that was because specifically of COVID is another question. But there yeah. was clearly like a spike in deaths and lots of people getting a disease. Absolutely, and, and so I just think you, you know, this idea is rubbish. It's an old old sort of uh, debate really around the fundamentals of virology so like some people just are not comfortable with what we can call kind of mainstream virology Mm. the mainstream theory of viruses and how they infect and who they infect but kind of parking that to one side essentially what what you're doing with the pcr um, is you're basically swabbing for viral rna and you're using this enzyme which is um, reverse transcriptase which is where it gets its name from the rt pcr Uh, which is polymerase uh, chain reaction. So what you're going to do is you're going to essentially convert the RNA, which is single-stranded, you're going to get the double-stranded DNA, and then comes the controversial part, which is uh, the thermal cycles, the heating and cooling. And this is where you take your tiny little bit that you've swapped, and essentially you're going to amplify it, um, running it through the cycles till you hit your uh, maximum cycle threshold mm-hmm. and if at some point along that line because you're going up from the the low number of cycles up to the high number which is more amplification more heating and cooling if at some point you get this uh you know signal gets produced um it, it's found a match basically and its reference point that they're using i think in the uk i believe is three genes it's the spike protein it's the nucleocapsid and it's um open reading frame ORF1A and ORF1B. So, you know, there is a theory behind it. You know, you're taking real material and you're doing a comparison. But even then, there are a couple of problems um, that I can see with that, even aside from this idea whether it's been isolated or not. Okay. So I I presume then that the the issues start with the number of cycles. Yes. Now, what I would say is this. So first point to say, because I'm going to be quite balanced here is and i and i think i looked into um, one of the sources i had was uh, public health england from october 2020 where they confirm and i think it does change sometimes but they confirm at that time uh, a typical rt pcr assay will have a maximum of 40 thermal cycles so everyone most people know you know 40 to 45 is very very high that means lots of amplification that means you know um less reliable let's just say and and it's quite well known that once you get to 40 you know you are looking at something quite unreliable however as i just mentioned it's important to understand that essentially um you will get a match at some point up to 40 cycles so it may be that at an earlier point in the amplification Mm -hmm. perhaps much earlier you got you actually hit your 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 match with um those reference points from covid19 and so I had a quick look at some ONS data on uh, a COVID-19 infection survey they put out, big Excel documents uh, every single week throughout COVID-19. And they include basically the actual cycle thresholds of the positive tests. So all the positive tests, where do they start getting the, 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 um, the, the positive test result from? And the, the average 
of the mean weekly positive tests, if yeah. that makes sense. So basically the average of the average came out at 26.7, which isn't quite so high as 40 or even 30. So it's not considered to be a particularly high number. So that shows that your average sort of COVID-19 positive test isn't necessarily at a really, really high um, high number. Yeah, in fact, it's not too different from yeah. from that number um, there as well. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, this this data, I think, is um, uh, this is from the government, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, this is it? from Government UK. Yeah. Uh, Public Health England data, I believe. Yeah. So this is what they're saying. So this is the the cycle. So this is number of cycles, and this is relative fluorescence. So what's this? Yeah, I think. Well, this is to do with um, uh, some kind of like uh, sig signal, essentially. Okay. So it's like the fluorescence is like what uh, okay, yeah, it's yeah, like br yeah. bright light or something. Okay, I'm with you. Um, so the plateau phase. So basically, what they're saying is, I have no idea. Yeah, that may well be like um, example. For example, um, you know, that's essentially it. So it, it, what what you're seeing there, I think, is you're seeing an abrupt signal, and that's what I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So it's like as you amplify, suddenly you see a signal, and it's like, well, it can't. It, you know, it, it's as bright as it's going to be. You, mm -hmm. You've you've hit the match at this point. It mm -hmm. required that much amplification. So, you know, a, a stronger match won't require nearly as much um, amplification. Mm -hmm. What's also interesting, I mentioned those um, three genes or proteins that, you know, spike, um, nucleocapsid and open reading frame. Um, you can actually get different combinations of them and it will still count as a positive test. So if you hit spike, they won't count that. Spike alone doesn't doesn't count as a positive PCR. Um, with Omicron, it's gone anyway because it's something called uh, S-gene failure, essentially, which means that spikes change so much the test doesn't even recognize it. It's actually how they can detect uh, Omicron cases versus Delta. It's to do with the mutation in spike. But I say that to say... I was wondering how they did that. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's how they know so quickly without doing um, uh, sequencing. So genomic sequencing is when they fully go, and they do this, I think, I don't know the exact percentage, like 2% or 5% of, ver of uh, cases they used to do this for. They used to actually go and take that into the lab and they do full sequencing. Mm. That's how they detect new variants, essentially. But they don't do that typically for a positive uh, PCR test. Okay, right. So, so basically, we're, what you've been saying here is then that the yeah twenty six point seven cycles um, was the average. Did you say? Yeah, correct. Twenty six point seven. So that's that's far below because people said what after you get what did they say after thirty cycles that 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 was that at least that was the number being touted by people that after thirty cycles it becomes like a wildly unreliable test and I assume that that is what that this this thing was trying to show us on the screen is that at this point here yeah and that is exactly thirty cycles where it hits the plateau that seems so that basically this is confirming or, or at least trying to say that. That is the the level at which it it reaches its like maximum like level of effectiveness essentially in in like trying to. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure if this is like an. I haven't really looked at this particular. It looks to me that particular diagram just being uh, kind of um, instructive essentially for kind of typically how a test may may, may appear. Okay. Um, Let's ignore that then. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's kind of a nice diagram to to be fair, but but essentially. Um, I have another um, little, a very simple uh, average that I took. So what they do in this other um, uh, Excel spreadsheet, that was just from the ONS, so Office of National Statistics, um, 
they give you some of the percentiles. So think about the weekly data. Mm -hmm. They also record the 90th percentile. So this is essentially the cycle threshold where 90% of the PCR tests are below this threshold. Yeah. Um, and now the average for the 90th percentiles over all the weeks is 32.9. So that means roughly speaking, and it's, just, again, it's not an exact, yeah, yeah. you know, average, but you know, 90% of the tests are coming in at a piece at a cycle threshold below 32.9, which again, you know, isn't as high as kind of 40 or, or definitely not, you know, not up to 45. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that you can't get false positives. You absolutely can. There are reasons why the government even provides some of these reasons, you know, contamination. Because mm -hmm. remember, anything can become contaminated, right? Mm -hmm. At any stage, the machine itself, um, the swab, uh, you know, your technique, um, the, the lab that you send it off to, um, you know, human error in processing. Um, but essentially, I think the issue of the cycle thresholds, from, from what I've seen, it is an issue. But I don't think it's it's not for me the primary issue with the okay. PCR. Okay, so that's actually really interesting. Um, that the because I, you know, it's one of those things that you know, you see the 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 like the theories being touted online, but because they don't have this discussion in the open, like no one hears this information. Like like if. If all the people who for the past two years just were, they, they, that was their thing. They were focusing only on the PCR test. It's like 97% false positive, bro. Like, you know, or, you know, the, the common sense. I don't know why I always do that voice for that kind of person. But anyway, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, Jim bro trying to give you science. But like, if, if, you, if we'd heard this in public, like on the BBC, someone would come out and said, okay, see all these things about the PCR test being 97% false positive. Yeah here's why it's not true here's the data like just like yeah. you've done you know and it's, it's helpful and and you know i'm gonna say another thing you know kind of sort of in defense if you will of the government's position but then i'm going to introduce hmm. the, the the biggest problem with the pcr that that i can see so again what we've looked at is essentially right it's not necessarily the case that every single test is is hitting a match at a very very high threshold secondly the government and there's and and you know there's some um, uh, rationale for doing this. They point to days like in the summer of, say, 2020, when there was very low numbers of cases. And they say, well, look, for example, here, on the 31st of May 2020, there was only an overall positivity rate that, of all the COVID-19 tests that returned positive of 1.6%. So they say, well, the false positive rate can't be higher than 1.6% because only 1.6% of tests that day were even coming in as a positive. And, and you know, there's a, there's a, still a, a lot, they were still doing a lot of tests, you still know. doing a lot of tests. Exactly. But when we think about it proportionally, you know, it makes sense. It provides a sort of ceiling for that false positive, but then you could turn around and say, well, of those tests that were positive, how many were truly uh positive tests? Now I can say, here's the main, what I, from what I can see, the main flaw with our PC PCR test results and the government admit this one it's right there I think it's even in this particular document and it's this it's the fact that it's well known and this goes back you know through years I've looked into of the PCR test that the PCR test does not distinguish between infectious RNA viral material and non-infectious so it could be essentially you know like dead non-infectious not going to cause uh, a virus in in the body right mm -hmm. there's nothing uh, productive about it and it does not distinguish that and i believe that um when you look carefully at the government's own uh literature you will actually see that um 
admission, essentially. And that's pretty much um, a, a long-standing thing with the PCR test. So the only way you could really establish whether the, the you know, aside from the issue of the isolation of the virus, leave that aside, the only way you could really prove it, you actually have to go and take that material and propagate it in the lab. And that requires um, essentially uh, bio safety uh clearance you know it, it would be something under really strict conditions i think it's yeah. level three because you're actually de you're dealing then with potentially an infectious agent so they'd have to go and do that basically in the lab try to get the virus to replicate mm -hmm. but you know um that's not a kind of simple thing that they're doing for everybody right when you go and do a quick pcr test you're not you're not getting involved in that now why is that important because there's not definitive proof even with a positive test at a reasonable cycle threshold level mm -hmm. that you have infectious virus right now so if you're a person and that's going on holiday or doing something um you know uh, that requires you to have a negative test and you test positive mm -hmm. you might be thinking well not only what cycle did did it run on did was i one of the unlucky people where they amplified it really high didn't yeah, find yeah. it and eventually they found it like yeah, at, yeah, yeah. at 40 yeah, yeah or secondly did i have dead virus and did i overcome covid uh, a couple of months ago and you do hear anecdotally cases of people even people who cleared all the symptoms and they just keep testing positive mm. um i know i heard of a young man i think it was in italy or a country in europe and he just couldn't get himself home because he kept testing positive even though he had no symptoms anymore and that would essentially be what we're talking about here we'd be mm. talking about the picking up of dead viral rna amplifying it amplifying it and it can't tell the difference between the two mm. well lucky for that guy he was in italy and not australia or he'd still be in a fucking camp right um, yeah <laughs> tough times over there yeah. right now yeah the the extent to which people are fine with that is fucking stunning like that is not cool and the, like when they fired like rubber bullets all those the peaceful protesters on that outside their that, that government building i can't remember what the building was i think it's in sydney right right or melbourne one of the two they're the only two cities in australia anyway <laughs> <laughs> but the, i saw them do it and i was like bro you are one step from bloody sunday Right. You no, but like, people need to get this in their brain. It's like we cannot accept the police state, especially when like we're, because you know you're doing a great job of defending the government. Like I didn't, expect, <laughs> I didn't expect you to come out here and try out a bunch of like communist fucking propaganda. Uh, <laughs> but like, what we're trying to understand here is like, what is the basis? What was the basis for the for what was said to be justified afterwards, and then. On top of that, then what are what are the measures that you will go to, or what are the, the the lengths to which you will go to to prevent the spread of this thing, based on the data that we're trying to address might be faulty, and if there's even a tiny doubt of that, like you can't you can't consider turning the place into a police state. Well, that's it. You know, coming back to the PCR, this is essentially the point. It's like I'm not here to say, you know, the PCR test is always wrong, provably, because mm. it just, it doesn't necessarily um, appear to be that way. But there's also not certainty in terms of the, the results. And you and as I mentioned, you can still have those contamination issues um, and so forth. So again, it's like for, a for that doubt that we must harbour always, we must always harbour um, some doubt, especially in cases where, 
you're having asymptomatic uh, people. So there isn't even um, sort of like a secondary thing to fall back on. Like, you know, they have every single symptom from the list. It's like in such scenarios, is it really appropriate, especially when the person doesn't want to, to then enforce any kind of loss of liberty on that person, much less the kind of measures being taken um, in a place like Australia, and even in instances where they're not even testing positive. Mm. It's like, well, you're unvaccinated, so we're going to treat you differently. It's like, well, hold on a second. Um, who's done the overall risk-benefit analysis um, as to whether this is good for society? Because mm. if you if you take the sort of Emmanuel Macron line mm. and you want to pee off the unvaccinated and you say they're not citizens, yeah. has anyone done a risk-benefit analysis to work out um, whether this will lead to more harmony and... Um, unity and peace and prosperity or less because it sounds to me like that's a pretty much a disaster uh waiting to happen yeah. if you continue this kind of language spoiler alert this doesn't end well if we continue down this road right like, i'd love i'd love someone to bring up the 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 example from history in which we decided to segregate society on whatever basis and it didn't lead to fucking violence and revolution and and murder on yeah and sometimes like unfathomable scales and it's like if we're not there yet no 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 we're not like we have this wonderful chance to say you know what that's not a good idea and we can learn and, right. and be the people who decide no we won't like follow that line but hopefully we do so yeah so let's let's get to your like what is your big contention then with the pcr test sure it would simply be this um, the PCR test is a known imperfect measure for the detection of infectious virus, infectious, i.e. active viral infection. Mm. It's essentially there to match uh, examples of uh, viral material against the standard, right? And that's how we're using it. Um, it, it, it does not prove in and of itself uh, active viral infection versus previous infection and there's still some material that's, um, uh, you know, being uh, swabbed, essentially, and then amplified, amplified. So I think that's this major flaw is it, it simply doesn't prove uh, conclusively when you see that positive PCR that you have an active ongoing coronavirus infection, especially if your particular scenario belies the fact that it was a previous infection and, you know, you're over it now completely. Um, it, it doesn't. It's not concrete proof and it shouldn't be presented as such it's a diagnostic tool that points you in the direction that that's what's going on it's not concrete and it shouldn't be presented as such okay so you're basically saying that um you're getting when you so say you're symptomatic and you test and you know comes up positive covid19 that yeah that's pretty safe that that that's a fair assessment of of like that you're sick with COVID nineteen, but if you're sat there, perhaps you've got over it like a couple of weeks, or you were sick, or perhaps you even had it so mildly you didn't even notice, um, or that you're yeah you just you you're completely asymptomatic, and it tests positive. At that point, you think it's more likely to be dead virus, and the problem is that we're not distinguishing between these two things. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the sort of exact um, split in terms of how many times it's picking up um, a dead virus. I mean, I have seen a paper from uh, Bhattacharya um, a few years ago, just 2004. He looked at hepatitis A. His study, he found it even the PCR was, was, was somewhat quite good at picking up uh, infectious versus non-infectious. 
but we really we really don't know my my point here essentially is on the certainty because because everything that's being done is really around you know it's mandated it's sort of you're banned from this you can't do that you're locked out of this you're withheld from doing that and so with such strong political um you know decisions that are getting made for people's lives the burden of proof should be very 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 high mm. on those trying to stop people from doing their usual lawful normal business and in this particular case it's not a 100 certain thing it shouldn't be taken as such it's a tool diagnostically to suggest probably yes you have something but without knowing for sure and it needs it needs to have that caveat i think mm -hmm. yeah i mean I, I definitely think we're arriving at a position where there's a lot more of a nuanced conversation happening about it. like i mean when i saw the bbc talking about the, the different like some people died from and some people died with i was just like hold the phone here like, it's just like did i skip through to a parallel universe where there's good journalists at the bbc like no that's harsh there are some good journalists in the bbc but like <laughs> they, i i it's it's amazing that they can suddenly like be like oh okay yes um let's just let's just move on from that that thing that everyone was saying for two years that we didn't want to listen to and just present it as if it's brand new information like how how do they get away with this Right, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's what we want, ultimately, though. I mean, yeah. What we want yeah. is essentially listening to the debate and we want to influence the debate and we want people to um, to do the scientific method, which is to reevaluate, which is to weigh up, which is to consider. You know, science has never been um, settled and it still isn't. You know, most of the things that I read about whether they're happening at breakneck speed, i.e. with regards to the body and COVID-19 or the vaccines, you know, nobody knows for certain exactly how the virus affects the body mm. or the vaccine. It's a work in progress. You're trying to understand various studies, datas, mm. assays, and trying to put pieces of a very complicated puzzle together. You know, I don't know the ins and outs of every single um, part of the puzzle, and I can't claim to. I'm just trying to sort of put the pieces together. And that's essentially uh, how it is with a highly complex scientific um, process. So when you're dealing overall with the, you know, the pandemic or whatever you want to call it, you know, the spread of COVID-19, it requires a little bit more work than some people have been prepared to do. And I think at this point, and maybe because Omicron's less, um, you know, pathogenic, it's a good chance for people to see whether uh, the narrative that's gone before still holds up mm. at the moment. It's sort of a good chance to kind of have the conversation once again, I think. Yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to say that we know, you know, we're not, we're like, for, for anyone listening who's who's not, um, not on board with this, because I know I have people on, who listen from like all sides, political aisle. Um, and anyone that's not on board, like we're not, we're not saying that we have the answer. We're not saying that um, COVID doesn't exist, that we shouldn't like, we shouldn't have done anything about it. Definitely not. Like the, the main issue is, is with the lack of discussion surrounding things that are actually debated and like actually not fixed. And the, the fact that a lot of this is being imposed without that discussion. And that's, that used to be how we went about things in, you know, free and open society. You know, I have like, because it's the, the ability of like, so, so the people who've decided not to take the vaccine, it's like, you have the divine right to say no 
you know, that you have the right to say no or you're no longer a free man or a free woman or a free person. But that's it. Like, you know, like if you have not got the ability to say no to something, you're no longer free. And the fact that we have acquiesced to things being this close to being mandated, like actually mandated in the UK is, is stunning. Like, I'm, I'm very happy that we haven't arrived at the place that fucking Austria and... Um, I know there's been some horror stories out of, I think it's Slovenia. We couldn't even get petrol without your vac- vaccine, which unlike in Pakistan, they were trying to deny people bank accounts, and phone, mobile phone contracts based on it. It's like, this, this is not the way that we do things, you know? This is not it, especially when, again, like we're saying, there's, a, there's, there's debate about the data that this is being based on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not healthcare, is it? It's it's no. it's it's politics and then some. It's sort mm-hmm. of um, various attempts to coerce people. And as I like to say, if somebody you know hasn't taken it at this point, it's fair to say that they don't want to take it. And there's very few people at this point who haven't taken it who you know they're just too lazy to get down to the centre. They're just you know they're just waiting for a free day. It's like no, no, they haven't taken it right now. They made their mind up. They chose not to do it and they should be left alone. I mean, it's very, very simple. Uh, and I think that explains why you see all these um, increasingly frenetic attempts to interfere with people's uh, will and to disrespect them. Um, it, it's not healthcare. It's not good government. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's that, that, that you, I couldn't have said it better myself. It's not healthcare and it's not good government. So the final thing that we want to move on to as if we haven't been controversial enough, is the yellow card reporting scheme because um i have seen this discussed online i've seen a lot of people on joe rogan's show for example bringing up their um various data or data and um that is not obviously what we have here in the uk we have a different thing we have the yellow card reporting data and the, the the thing that made me really question what it was was when I saw, and I don't know if you saw this, Naomi Long um, being quote-unquote schooled by people. I don't know if, I, I just don't know. Um, when she, they were basically saying, look at the yellow card reporting data. And she was like saying, it's not what you think it is. It's like, these aren't like official reportings of adverse reactions to, to the vaccine or, or yeah. And I, I then was like, hang on, so... What is it for? So can we start by maybe clearing that up? Sure. Well, I mean, I was looking earlier at some products uh, or a product in my bathroom. And even there, it mentions the yellow card scheme, just a cosmetic product. Um, Because, uh, you know, medical products, pharmaceuticals and vaccines as well uh, have a system in place for the monitoring for adverse reactions. And why is this? Because no drug or pharmaceutical or vaccine is going to be 100% safe. This is a pretty basic point, but it seems like it needs to be said in the current times. Mm -hmm. Now, what you need in essentially every country is a platform for anybody, any doctor or any individual or family member to report in an adverse reaction so that there can be a proper monitoring process so that we can see um, the manufacturers and the medical regulator whether the product for which complaints or adverse reactions have been logged is potentially uh, giving out 
uh, a safety signal. So it's very important that it's a public system. So this is exactly what the yellow card scheme is here in the UK. There's uh, portals available online on the government's website and you can essentially um, submit a report uh, on behalf of someone or yourself if you uh, take one of the COVID-19 vaccines and then you have sufficient reason to believe that it caused an adverse reaction, which could be something very mild like a headache or feeling of malaise or feeling unwell, right up to any of these acute um, adverse reactions um, like myocarditis, anaphylactic thrombosis. And what happens then is this data is then publicly available. Um, now, what normally happens is um, when you have lots and lots of reports like we see in the yellow card scheme, we have well over a million adverse reactions and over 1800 deaths. Yeah, we'll get uh, into that. Yeah. Right. When you have that, you normally um, would have concern at the level of the medical regulator and the government. Now, because that's not happening to the level where I think it should be, you've then got the people themselves taking it upon themselves to speak up like what I'm doing with my work. Or, as you said, the people sort of bringing it to Naomi Long's attention because it doesn't seem like the politicians are expressing enough concern. Plenty of concern for COVID, but not so much the vaccines. Yeah. I mean, I often think at the minute with, with what's the, the way politicians have reacted is that like, no one's showing them the, the data, man. Like, I, I really, I actually believe that at this point. I mean, maybe not Robin Swan, he's dangerous, but... Uh, <laughs> That would be forever. Like, that's Van Morrison's legacy. Yes, it's like, yeah. forget Brown Eye Girl. Like, that's his legacy. Um, but the... I totally lost my train of thought. What, yes. what were we saying? Well, on the yellow card scheme yes. data, right? Yes. Um, oh, the politicians aren't getting the data. Right. Like, look at the SAGE modelling. Right. Look at... What the, like, SAGE were literally being told not to give the government the good like scenarios do you know what i mean they were giving him the worst case scenario and the northern ireland executive were doing the same yeah and it's it's, it's stunning that, that that is acceptable like if i was if i was any of the politicians right who had made decisions that had been really harmful to the northern irish economy like taxi drivers who lost fucking everything like i i heard some horror stories about them having to like some of them having to sell furniture because they couldn't afford food Right. I heard stories of, of just like people who would be living off of tips um, in a restaurant or a bar, just like barely able to live. Um, just, and that doesn't even go into like the suicides and the mental health problems being caused by all this. And, but, and, and the politicians all, all did these, these things based on the data that they were presented and they were told, here's what's going to happen. You need to do something. And if they weren't shown like that, that wasn't the, almost definite scenario because the like if 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 some you know clinicians put a scenario in front you go like well they've thought it through and if they're giving them the worst case scenario and then the politicians are, are basing their decisions on that decisions that have been harmful like the discuss the debate as to whether like what happened because of the lockdowns was more harmful than like what would have happened otherwise is one that i'm sure will rage forever but they've based that on data that turns out to have been like wildly exaggerated in terms of like its accuracy and i would be fucking pissed if i had been sold that like i would be furious right yeah and and and, and this is the reality is these are projections this is modeling and we've been able to verify when it comes to the sort of like the lockdown measures uh you know people remember um 
uh, Neil Ferguson's models and the, the modeling of um, numbers of cases that haven't materialized, numbers of deaths that haven't materialized. Um, what I would say from my perspective is, and that's very, very serious, lockdown measures have profound what we can really think of as, as the secondary effects because it's like you're not a direct uh, casualty of COVID, but you may be affected by one of the measures in the whole COVID so-called public health response. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I see very much the same uh, parallel when it comes to the experimental vaccines, where I see essentially modeling and clinical trials that have many, many issues with them, uh, allegations uh, about the data, and mm -hmm. even things we know about the data that don't really uh, stack up. And then basically you're projecting that onto your population and saying, well, because of those results from a clinical trial, we will see this effect on the population. And then it gets very, very serious because, mm. you know, these are new products. And so what started off as a problem in March 2020 in terms of the lockdown modeling, mm. and we kind of know about that, has only continued until right now. And it's still going on with, you know, let's model what happens if we give a fourth dose mm. of the vaccine and get to combat Omicron. And it's like, we still haven't really learned our lessons. You know, I think what we've done is we've too closely correlated uh, political moves mm -hmm. and the political discourse mm -hmm. and the tone coming from the government to essentially uh, theories and things that have been modeled. And we shouldn't be putting so much weight on it. People should be much more free to make their own minds up. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like the politicization of it all is insane. Like, I, yeah, I talked about this with, with Otto English, but a lot of the decisions that were being made about lockdowns were nothing to do with like public health data that was being presented. And it was all to do with what the public would accept. Like like Jordan Peterson has come out and said in Canada, there's like several um, provinces, like they're based, they're almost entirely basing their current um, and previous like laws and lockdowns and all these regulations on, on like polling. And the government were doing that as well. Like Sage were, were polling like to figure out what people would accept like that is fucking insane to me i i just i can't can't believe that public health decisions were being made based on yeah polls right yeah because the people maybe driving it would tend to be those who essentially are kind of like the bedrock of the government now which are those people who uh feel very strongly about um, you know, having very, very robust public health measures. And if you're the government, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of leaning on them really for your support right now ac across the world, really. Um, but it needs to be challenged narrative, definitely. Yeah. Well, that's what we're hoping to do here before we get banned from YouTube. So <laughs> um, hopefully if we say it enough times, they won't do it. Maybe, maybe. But anyway, so I wanted to get up this, this um, yellow card analysis just because this, this was very interesting to me. Um so sure. first of all, they give the introduction. Do you, do you want to talk us through yes, some of this? Sure. This is just a, a nice, simple website, uh, ukfreedomproject.org. Um, uh, I think if you scroll down just slightly, it's got a few nice tables we can have a little um, look at, I think, mm -hmm. on the front page. What we do, oh, this, this is maybe useful as well, actually, to go through. Yes. So this is, this is what the yellow card reporting data can show. They can show how many doses, how many adverse reactions have been reported, how many deaths have been reported, and how each reaction and death has been classified in fine detail. So that's really good. But then it's important to note, as we have been trying to do the whole time, is like this could be, yeah, coincidence. And correlation doesn't equal causation. 
Um, this doesn't like show time between dose and death, time between death or reacting, demographic information. Like this is all. This is like this is a lot of data that would be useful. Um, yeah. But at least like we get a sketch of 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 what's going on. You know, it's 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 like really really low resolution understanding that we can get like this would be really helpful but uh, but what we can know is is really good yeah i mean and again you know one of the purposes of a public adverse reaction system is to be able to identify signals essentially so you can see here for example like the summary data um i think and so obviously the headline figure which looks like it's gone up a little bit um and the bottom right corner the total number so these are total number of deaths uh, where someone close to the deceased person believes that the uh, administration of the vaccine has been a causal factor in the death, or it may have been a causal factor. And, and that number stands at 1,932 right now, um, which is obviously a lot. And then just above that, uh, and, and a sad number, you know, over 1.4 million total adverse reactions. Um, so, you know, we often hear, well, there's been a lot of doses um, administered. Yeah. Um, so, you know, adverse reactions are, are, are rare. But obviously the overall total number of people who actually, where somebody actually took the time to fill one out is it, it, pretty high overall. Obviously, there's a they range in severity from the not so severe yeah. to the very severe. Yeah. So have we got, like, is there, how many of these require a doctor to say that was the case? Or is this literally just what people yeah so i mean yellow card is is publicly available doctor can fill it out but you know anybody can as well so so it's it's open to the public which is one of the things where it would be um criticized for but but that goes with the um uh terrain of of a public uh adverse reaction warning system yeah yeah i mean well the politicians who are saying we shouldn't listen to the public when they're doing things like this uh you know would probably like to discount their votes (laughs) and it's worth saying as well we've just seen um earlier the you know the the covid deaths as well we've seen how um you know not all those deaths are even considered to be with covid as the underlying cause so you know it works both ways in the sense that we need to see all the numbers and then we need to sort of um uh, uh, take it seriously and 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 look the onus is really on when you have a new technology you have uh, something that's being introduced to people for the first time, which this is the adenovirus DNA of AstraZeneca, the mRNA of Pfizer and Moderna. This is all new stuff. Nobody's ever had this before here in the UK. So we do need to understand the impact. And this is one of the, the quickest, most important ways to try to gauge that. Mm. Yeah, so I got up here just the, these. Let's scroll down a little bit. So yeah, so the fucking AstraZeneca is like really fucking doses, but they're 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 like one third of the doses accounted for two thirds of the deaths and adverse reactions. Like holy shit. Yeah, I I think that's quite possibly because you know AstraZeneca would tend to be given to to older people who are either more likely perhaps to um to have that logged, for example, um. Or sadly, maybe to have um, suffered an adverse adverse reaction. So I think there's probably a relationship there as well. Yeah, I mean, this would load. That would be lovely. Um, I assume that's not the actual figures that they're showing us there. Yeah, I mean, I've... there has been 170,000 people shown died from uh, yeah, I think headaches. It, yeah, it's it's skewed out slightly, like the yeah, wrong that's, column. That's refuse. So what what those are would anyway, be that'll, that'll load up at some point. So we'll leave that to load. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah. So, like, what do we know about about how has there been any studies done on how accurate the the yellow card reporting data is? Like, how close to or like how how what percentage is is bullshit and what percentage is unreported? Basically, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I I can tell you like traditionally. Uh, and this goes back to, and I mean, it's not so much for the yellow card, but sort of for American reporting systems. You know, there's generally an idea of what's called an under-reporting factor. So to the contrary of this overstating the case, it's actually the the fact that it tends to under-report it. And even if you go and you look at the disclaimer for, I think it's VAERS, you'll even see a little article there from the US government talking about the phenomenon of under-reporting. So I think there was a study done about 2009. It was on... It wasn't on deaths, it was on rashes following vaccination. And in that particular Harvard study, it found, I think it was a 1% uh, reporting rate. Now, it's fair to say that, you know, rashes probably are underreported more than very severe reactions like, you know, myocarditis or death. But it stands to reason that this is a pretty well-established phenomenon. In addition to that, what I have seen is some of the analysis, again, on the US side in terms of trying to establish... Uh, how credible the reports are. Mm-hmm. And I think Dr. Peter McCulloch's um, spoken up a little bit on that. Mm-hmm. And another researcher would be uh, Dr. Rose, who he often works with as well. And what they found is, you know, a majority of these reports in the VAERS system um, where you had the fatality, it, you know, most of them it did appear to be when you independently assess them, like the the causal factor, as in there wasn't another uh ready explanation for, mm. for many many of these deaths so people do do that a lot they they they, they um uh, independently verify the some of the case um reports mm. and then the other thing it's fair to say is um you know instances that we kind of i, I you know you, you even go back to clinical trials and you have adverse reactions that we know were not properly um reported yeah uh, and, and I know a couple of examples of that. So, so that's another sort of thing to bear in mind is even back to the clinical trials, uh, you have this idea of underreporting essentially. Yeah, well, we had the we had the whistleblowers right from 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 the Pfizer trial that were saying that they a girl was paralyzed and they'd registered right. it as a an upset stomach. Yeah, abdominal pain. Yeah, that's yeah. Maddie DeGray, twelve year old girl. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother Stephanie DeGray, DeGray, she gave the evidence at the hearing of Senator Ron Johnson. Uh, in America, um, and there are others um, as well. I mean, a second point to that: this is on the that's the Pfizer uh, adolescent clinical trial. But also, when you look uh, in November last year, there was a whistleblower from Ventavia who basically helped Pfizer with their clinical research during the trials, and th- they had a regional director called Brooke Jackson. And she submitted evidence, I think it included emails and other communication to the British Medical Journal. They didn't publish the raw data, but she did submit the raw data, which included allegations of falsification of data and lack of close monitoring for tri- of trial participants who experienced adverse events, right down to the targeting of Ventavia staff who tried to report issues with the following of the protocols and other things and the bmj ran an investigation and published that a couple of pages i think it was called bmj investigation um so if we can get that up yeah that that, that was in the bmj stunning that sounds insane man so they 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 were going after so she she filed a 
the data she, or she she sent the data to the british medical journal yeah we don't have access to the raw examples that brooke jackson uh showed to the bmj but my understanding of the evidence submitted i think there's i think there's a disclaimer in the article saying you know that the bmj themselves have seen and have verified in other words that the documents she provided to them uh was credible enough for them to run the investigation yeah. it wasn't just like hearsay for example because you know like when you have a whistleblower the allegation can come well maybe the whistleblower is um a disgruntled employee right uh, and and this would serve to uh, refute anything like that because she presents the raw evidence to them so a real whistleblower as in a real disclosure um so facebook censored this and then there's a fact checker's response to this so the facebook yeah facebook uh, said that there was missing context and nothing in Th um thacker's article can mislead without additional context so let's see if i can just double this and we'll duplicate it so i can see this and i can continue to read um so i'm just trying to we'll get this up here and then we'll get it on the screen for everyone yeah. to see i can keep reading lovely okay so um researchers blow whistle on a data integrity issue in pfizer's vaccine trial holy fuck man yeah. regional director you can see yeah so not just uh published the second of november 2021 that was two fucking months ago three months ago nearly they, and they can see that quote, Jackson provides the BMJ with dozens of internal company documents, photos, audio recordings, and emails. So that's what I was mentioning. It's, it's proper sort of, it's not just what's written here. It's like, no, behind the scenes, which we don't see, they seen it, is the real evidence. Holy shit, man. And, she, and look, she was fired as well for notifying uh, the FDA. So she tried to go through the right process. So imagine this is the regional director, right? So senior person, uh, we're talking about the clinical trial of Pfizer, trying to do the right thing, uh, goes to who should be impartial, mm -hmm. i.e. the US medical regulator, FDA, is fired the same day. And obviously at that point is thinking, well, this isn't so good. Yeah. And bear in mind all the stuff that they've seen in the first place, let alone her own uh, yeah. experience. Yeah. She repeatedly informed her superiors of poor laboratory management, patient safety concerns, and data integrity issues. She was a trained clinical trial auditor who previously held a director of operations position and came to Ventalia with more than 15 years experience. One photo provided to the BMJ shows... What? Showed needles discarded in a plastic biohazard bag instead of a sharps container box. Another showed vaccine packaging materials with trial participants' identification numbers written on them left out in the open, potentially unblinding participants. Jesus, this is... So they fucked it, basically. <laughs> it's, the, it's the reality. <laughs> well, between those allegations and... Look, what happened to Maddie DeGaray? Now remember, in, that's the adolescent clinical trial. So 12-year-old girl, life-changing adverse event, is now uh, in a wheelchair with nasogastric tube to deliver the food. She's a completely healthy girl before. Her life has completely changed. Now, think about this. There was only 1,131 12 to 15-year-olds who were being jabbed in Pfizer's trial. One of those children suffers a completely catastrophic adverse event that begins immediately following injection. So immediately following it, she starts to have um, a lot of pain, 
uh, that within 24 hours, her heart is causing major issues. Yeah, really. Now, here's the key point. When the JCVI said about 12 to 15 year olds, well, it's a very close risk benefit analysis. Remember, they're receiving Pfizer in schools, the Pfizer jab. That's not accounting for the fact that there's a child who's gone down, as, according to the data, is just having abdominal pain. Mm. I quote this in my risk assessment and when I did my recent presentation, that everybody says, um, including Pfizer's website, they say positive top-line results. They say that their jab was well-tolerated. Then you have the New England Journal of Medicine in the summer of last year reporting on the results, and they said that there were few serious adverse events and none were considered by the investigators to have been vaccine-related. So again, the idea of causality, they're saying, well, it's not. But how can you explain a perfectly healthy child who is absolutely fine, immediately suffering from pain, and then going downhill very, very, very quickly and still suffering a life-changing adverse events to this day. And there's still not been any step change in that, right? So very, very disturbing. Mm. Um, and so you know, people might say, well, well, that's one example. Well, hold on a second. No, but like anyone that says that can fuck off, man. Well, it like, changed it's a risk one, No, no, no. That's one chat. Like, I, I, I hate the way we've all become so desensitized to death. Like, death is awful. And, like, in a way, it's a part of life that we have to accept. You know, every world can fucking die. I'd like it to be in, you know, as Tyrion Lannister says, at the age of 80 in my own bed. Etc, etc. Um, but the, the... the This idea that, like, one child's death is worth some other person's life. I, I get so so uncomfortable with it's just like fuck you for making for deciding that you are the one to make that decision like no one no one you can't it's like one life is worth another it's like oh okay so you're now the person tallying up what lives are worth like mm. yeah right. yeah i, re I really uncomfortable because like we cannot like protect like as uh, not you but i i just i see people dismissing the deaths of children and, and and whether that's from the vaccine or whether that's the few that have died of COVID, it's like in any case, like that's fucking tragic. It is. And it should not be minimized. Um, and yeah, sorry, I just... It's, it's... <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, this is very important though, because people um, don't really see that you have to bear in mind when you have an adverse event affecting an otherwise healthy person, for example, like... Uh, Maddie de Grey, this child, this poor child, that that's particularly um, serious and particularly um, shocking because we're not talking about people where maybe the risk factor of a novel treatment, you know, you're, you're sort of thinking, right, let's take this example. You know, radiotherapy and chemotherapy is not nice. It is not comfortable and mm. it is going to cause... Um, some collateral damage to the body mm -hmm. but why does a person go through that because they have cancer because they have maybe a terminal illness or they're trying to stop the progression mm -hmm. to something terminal again when you think about experimental products they may well be uh, offered to people and it will always it should always be without coercion it would be would you like to have this but the risk factor for the both the doctor and for the family and for the patient may be a little bit more aggressive 
when i.e. ambitious, willing to take a risk, when they're already in a position where they really need some help. Mm. But when you take somebody like a child who's otherwise healthy, very healthy, uh, is actually going to fight this virus no problem, mm -hmm. is not a vector for disease and spread, because actually their innate immune system will probably just clear this virus and it may not affect them any more than the other 200 common cold-causing viruses do, for example. If they then suffer an any kind of adverse reaction, let alone a life-changing one, that needs to be taken absolutely, extremely seriously. Yeah, and it, it does. And, like, this is, again, this is not to minimise, like, the kids who, the, the, the ones who are, like, immunocompromised or that those one child in like millions that that gets covid and, and and dies like that's still fucking tragic man but you know what's more tragic is the fact that we have no outpatient treatment to give to those the, those children who on the like it's like on the balance you know maybe it's not a good idea to give kids the vaccine if we don't know like i always thought that that was the case that we we didn't give children things that we didn't have lots of long-term data for because we didn't know how it was going to affect them developmentally. I just thought that was a given. I, I I had no idea that like there was people just waiting for the government to say, that's fine. And they'd be like, okay, let's go. Like, that's so crazy to me, man. But the fact I can't, yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't quite process the fact that that that's like the, the way that we've all reacted to, well, not all, but many people have reacted to this but um so i want to I, I want to try and go over a few more of these adverse reaction things just before we finish up here because uh, we've been talking for quite a while um sure. so um of course these uh things still haven't um loaded that's good or we can get the excel spreadsheet up maybe maybe that's a good thing to do yeah i've got some of the the numbers here as well so okay well then yeah just do you want, do you want to just read them I, i'm i'll put the link for this um in the description for people to check it out themselves just on sure. load at the minute yeah, I mean, I would just point out just a couple of things from the yellow card data. And remember, this is just giving um, signals in terms of things that may cause us some concern. So essentially, we've got deaths and we've also got um, some classification of some of the, of the types of adverse reactions. So I would just pick out a few things from there. I mean, look, when it comes to um, deaths that are in the system, we see some of the top causes of death that have been named include pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot on the lungs. We see myocardial infarction, which is a heart attack, blood clot in the blood vessels in the heart. And we also see, um, you know, cerebrovascular accident, and we see also cerebral hemorrhage and thrombosis and cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. So we see um, thrombosis and we see, which is a yeah. blood clot, in the blood vessels and we also see uh, aneurysm as well which is a bulging of the blood vessel wall which is sort of quite similar as well so quite a few of the top causes are and they, that was i think those are all amongst the top 10 named causes of death i mean the top named cause there is pulmonary embolism 150 mm -hmm. myocardial infarction is the second on the list which is 95 mm -hmm. and then the third on the list is a cardiac arrest so that's damage to the heart that's 84 now, for both thrombosis, uh, blood clots, and for damage to the heart, like cardiac arrest, we have fairly plausible um, mechanisms of damage of the vaccine that can explain it. 
And I think that's really, really important. It's this idea that following um, the administration of the dose in the deltoid muscle, we know the whole target of this thing, the whole point of it is to create something called the spike protein. But we also know that the spike protein itself uh, is able to bind to the inner lining of the blood vessels. It's also able to bind to platelets within the blood. So the very simple thing here is if the spike protein can get itself into the blood, yes, there is a plausible uh, mechanism of action by which it can contribute to causally uh, thrombotic events. And, you know, your vascular network, right? It's like once you're in there, you know, you're in there yeah. and you can move around. Those spikes can move around. And as, as far as do we have spike protein uh, in the blood following vaccination, well, there is mm -hmm. the one piece of evidence I always come back to is the study in the Journal of Immunology, the Bansal study from November um, 2021. Is this the, the autopsies? No, this is this is actually uh, transmission electron microscopy. What they did, very simple study, very, very simple. Uh, people took the Pfizer jab and they extracted the blood, the serum of mm. donors, and they looked at it under uh, electron microscope and they found... Um, the spike protein in there yeah. for four months, right? For four months? Was that on 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 average or um, that was actually just... the last date they took the the study? It just so it they just didn't. Covered four so months. it wasn't. It, so they didn't keep going and check it. Well, I think like they, they published the paper at that point or whatever. So maybe they'll do another. Okay. They'll give you well, some more what's, results. What's the what's this? I can pull um, this up. Here. This is called. It's got an interesting title. Uh, it's called. Well, I, I won't be able to name the whole title, but essentially, it's it's Bansal, which is uh, B A N. SAL and it's called uh, cutting edge. I think it's called you know novel uh, mRNA activation essentially, um, and it talks about exosomes. It's it's this idea that prior to the immune response following mRNA vaccination, you're going to induce uh, something called exosomes um, uh, in the blood, which they basically try to play off as a really uh, sort of cool and exciting uh, feature of immunology. Um, but other people would would say actually this is kind of quite worrying. Okay, is this it? Yeah, precisely, absolutely. That's the Bansal study, correct? Lovely. Okay, so just again, once just because I'm I'm really trying hard here because I know we're discussing a lot of things that people will say are crazy, right? And I'm very keen to ensure that we. Um... Yeah, I, they may have taken it off the paywall. I'm not sure if that link will uh, will open out um, at the top right for the Journal of Immunology um, or whether it's just directly to the paywall. Um, but if they do, if they do let you see it, I, th I think maybe it's behind the paywall. There's a great image inside of it. Doesn't seem to be. Oh, oh no. Yes, yeah. yes, perfect. You, you've got the whole paper. That That is actually, and this is a great image to, to show people, that's actually an exosome. Um uh, with a spike protein uh, induct and um, being inducted on on its surface, which is essentially uh, exosomes are really for like intercellular communication, like across different cells. Okay. And what this is 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 essentially um, they've just they've just magnified it like quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but it's quite powerful because what so was a theory? Is the it, bastard it's... that's fucked us all. Right, it's it's now not a theory. It's like it's like that's it. There's it's, the spike protein, yeah. Yeah, it's like this to me is probably like the most famous image right now in terms of because let me tell you, this is this is blood. Like this isn't like um, a, a laboratory study where they tried a few things. Like they just took blood from donors, 
and then looked under under a microscope and there and there's a spike protein Mm. exactly what many of us have been concerned about yeah so it's like this is like the gold standard study there's like there's no way to interpret this Mm. other than spike gets in the blood yeah yeah that's really interesting man i hadn't seen that image um but right so so yeah this this i'll put this in the th- in the description for people again but so essentially this is just uh, yeah that we got off off track there with me wanting to see what this looked like but um essentially the the point we're trying to make and that you're trying to make i think is that the there is a number of adverse reactions that have been reported yeah um self reported admittedly yeah. but that these um reactions have been this isn't like isolated here like it's been reported many countries in the world yeah um like the v the var the the vars data that we have in america lines up reasonably well with yep. you know the portion yep. of, of uh, yeah so it suggests that there isn't no side effects at all right <laughs> start with that right yes. so there's not no side effects so then if there are side effects the thing that confuses me a lot is it's like why are we why are we not addressing this because like say it's like some little thing that you could change and tweak and that it would be less deadly right or not less deadly but like that there there would be less of these adverse reactions we'd understand how to like prevent these adverse reactions or treat them when they arrive or give someone some drug to like prevent like other reactions to it like because like combining medication is not an uncommon thing in the medical world right um like giving someone something to deal with one part and then something else to deal with the side effects of that thing but it's worth it because you know the thing that they're trying to stop in the first place is worse than the, the... this isn't uncommon but we need to know what the data is before you can like figure out what to do about it you can't just like pretend it's not there you know right yeah absolutely i mean you know what i would say is everything that could cause us concern does cause us concern so you know it's new technology that means the the old safety data from previous vaccines simply Mm. doesn't essentially apply right because we've not had mrna vaccine we've not had some of the excipients which are the ingredients before we've never had yeah. Uh, PEG, mm. which can cause anaphylactics. We've mm. never had um, cationic lipids, mm. and, and that's an interesting story behind that. So this is in this is for Pfizer and Moderna, the mm. mRNA vaccines. Uh, cationic lipids. Again, I talked earlier about um, treatments for cancer. Well, cationic lipids are positively charged lipids to help with the successful delivery of this genetic cargo into your cells. Remember, mm. you've got to get those little lipid nanoparticles yeah, yeah. Uh, to be trusted by your cells basically like a blob of fat or mm-hmm. a lipid. And in order to help them do that, it, it, they create a positive charge in the cell. But positive charges in the cell can induce um, something called reactive oxygen species, which is free radicals. Mm. Now, when else in the last few years have they been trying to do this? Believe it or not, it's for uh, cancer treatments. It's cancer therapeutics. Why? Because it starts a cascade in your cell with the positive charge inducing free radicals that leads to cellular death. Mm. So the point is, We've taken an idea from a cancer therapeutic. Well, that makes sense if you're trying to kill cells because yeah. you have cancer. You want to kill the cells rather than, uh, you know, using, um, as I mentioned before, chemotherapy, radiotherapy or whatever. But it doesn't make as much sense when actually what you're trying to do is you're literally just trying to uh, get lipids to be trusted by your cells. And this is what a lot of people don't know. 
the sheer number of let's just call them hacks that they had to do to get your body uh, to successfully uptake the lipid nanoparticles into your cells and then for them to to essentially not just be uh, captured and swept away by the endosomes as well like cellular waste so another thing they did what do you mean hacks well, what I it's mean like, is, this is totally getting banned territory now. No, but like, what do you mean? <laughs> what I mean is things that do not happen, uh, you know, uh, uh, naturally, let's just say, let me say this. If you think about really what's going on with vaccines, right, in mm-hmm. terms of the general theory, you're trying to give people an exa- a safe training example of a virus so that when they meet the virus in the wild from a natural infection, they can recall what they've learned. Mm-hmm. So it should be safe. Because the whole point is it should be safer at the very least than what they were going to do. Otherwise, they might as well have just met the virus. Um, So traditional ideas for this would include what we call live attenuated. So it's a real virus. It really will infect, but it's not so pathogenic. We attenuate it. We we weaken it somehow. Mm. Or a virus that's actually been inactivated. So it's it's replication deficient, which is what these are. These are essentially types of... um, They're not going to replicate their viral proteins they're going to come into your cells once Mm. instruct it to create the spike protein that's the theory anyway and then they're going to kind of uh hopefully at some point get 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 sort of um uh uh, flushed away but in order to uh get to that stage Mm. remember the goal is very simple the goal is to get the rna which is the instruction to create the spike protein, Mm -hmm. which comes from the lab. They Mm -hmm. started with DNA, they convert to RNA, they then wrap it in a blob of fat and put some kind of uh, other ingredients to kind of stabilize it, you could say, right? And then the idea, and they keep it nice and cold, they want to get that RNA into the cells and your body's basically going to start uh, the process of creating the viral protein. Mm. But not only does it have those two lipids I just mentioned, so the PEG, um, which is in things like hair dyes and other pharmaceuticals and the cationic lipids, which has got some history in kind of novel, the development of novel uh, cancer therapeutics, mm. even down to the RNA code, they actually did have to, uh, it's not just the straight code for the spike protein. That's not true. They subbed out um, uh, part of the code, essentially, you could say it's called uridine and they put in something else, right? So in in, in the real... Uh, let's just say like the sequence you could say for it. If you yeah. remember like um, uh, this is RNA, so it's, it's yeah. a code. They subbed out uridine. They stuck in something called one methyl pseudo uridine. The reason they did that is very simple. One reason only because uh, it was more efficient the way that you are going to create the protein essentially. Okay. And they do something similar where it's a codon optimized sequence as well, which again is a, is a similar thing. It's why we talk about it being mod RNA. It's mm. modified RNA. Okay. okay, it's not even like the RNA is exactly what you'd see in the virus. They've had to do a couple of tweaks to it. Mm, okay, right. I mean, but that makes sense if, like, you know, a lot of these things you, you can say things that sound to me like dangerous bio experimentation, but might just be like pretty standard practice in in virology and and then you know creating vaccines. Well, except, ex- I mean, it could you know one um interpretation is well it will turn out to be a great success right and Mm. everyone will say well how wonderful but this is the point is as you mentioned earlier there's no long-term safety studies Mm. so it's not like there's something we can point to and say well using a codon optimized sequence which also applies to astrazeneca that is going to cause a problem like it may just be a neat little hack but it's 
it's very important that people understand that there was a lot of things that were done purely to actually get the technology to work. Mm. But do we have like long-term safety studies that independently verify that, you know, subbing out the uridine is totally a safe thing to do or safety study to say using uh, those positively charged ionizable cationic lipids. There's no problem with that. Like, like we don't, we don't, we don't have that. And there's, there's, there's some really real reasons, especially with uh, booster doses, because you're compounding the safety mm. issues. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, 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 the chief scientist from Israel is now saying this um, after the fourth dose that there was no, there was nothing, and that repeated doses could could get really could be harmful to the immune system as they sort of then because then you're you're teaching it to become dependent on on something. Right. I think was his was his argument at least in a very yeah non scientific way that I'm doing it, but um, yeah, I guess the point is that we don't know exactly what the long term data is, and therefore we can't start mandating any of these things when when we just don't know. Um, but like I don't know, I think it's telling that there hasn't been. Like you don't see doctors lining up to go to come on this show or maybe not this show, but like other shows to right. come on and go, look, this is why you're wrong. Like I don't see that enough, you know, and, and part of me wonders is like, do they not want to bother? Is it like, a, a, like they don't want to be seen as like talking to anti-vaxxers or is it like they don't know as well and they don't want to say? Well, I mean, at the moment, you know, it was presented to us like there was a unsolvable problem. Yeah. And even that is with early intervention treatments is, is highly questionable. Uh, let's just say, mm. you know, we were brought into a position of weakness and the population was offered one way out essentially. So there's a very uh, compelling uh, narrative there that seems to be global as well. Mm. And I think, it's almost like the same company was selling us the answer. Right, exactly. And and people tell me this, like, you know, I think if it, if, because it's like all the countries, because it's global, they're, they're finding it hard maybe sometimes to agree with what I'm saying. But if it was just like, you know, the UK or Ireland or something that was going down this path, then it would be more uh, easy for them to, um, to maybe agree with the argument. But they're like, well, how can it be that like all the countries do the wrong thing and it's like well because there are global bodies mm. like the uh, who the world economic forum um and the pharmaceuticals essentially are like these big transnational companies that have contracts as you mentioned like just about everywhere so so that's the reason why there's it's happening everywhere it's it's it's, mm. it's the, the the it's not just because well the the virus spreads everywhere it's like yes well that's that's true but there's some pretty uh serious global politics at play at the moment yeah, yeah, I've got um, the one other thing that I'd like to raise was um, this book. Right. What really happened in Wuhan? Advanced copy people. Haha. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this, I will be interviewing Cherry Markson in uh, February or March at some point once the book is out. But she makes the case that, that um, a lot of the. the early on in the pandemic that there was a lot of um a lot of suppression of the the lab leak theory with um certain journals like even refusing to publish anything that that questioned the natural origin of covid and her her 
suggestion is essentially that they're all taking Chinese money and they don't want to lose that revenue stream by insulting the Chinese government. Um, and it shows you how it doesn't matter. Like, like corruption has no borders. You know, it, it, it's, you can't, you can't say, well, if it's happening all around the world, that must mean it's not corruption. This is like, no, that's not how it works at all. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I mean, I, I guess the way I look at it is people probably are uh, used to thinking of their governments as not being so honest um, with regards to maybe foreign wars, with regards to maybe certain domestic policies. But when it comes to public health, people are a little bit less uh, confident mm. to sort of uh, point the finger and, mm. and think um, this is wrong. Even though, even in the area of public health, we have seen scandals and we've even seen um, things in the area of uh, pandemics or epidemics and vaccines before. In 1976, there was a very small scale um, swine flu outbreak. In fact, it only reached one US army base called Fort Dix in New Jersey. And for that, 13 people were infected that were confirmed and that was it but they injected 20% of the population of America in 1976 with a, a vaccine what not only that there's more not only that but the vaccine that they used which was X53A hadn't even been hadn't even been tested properly it was they marketed a, a different one that they had and then, then they actually ended up using X53A and that's that's um a pretty well kind of like known um it was essentially like a, a scandal uh and there was and, and and for one adverse reaction only which was gulen barry which is an adverse reaction it's quite well known after astrazeneca mm -hmm. it's neurological uh, damage it can be very serious and there was a few hundred cases of that and for that alone they they you know the program got stopped i think in december of uh, 1976 uh, and we see today, uh, as I said, Gulen Barry after AstraZeneca, and we see many other things besides that, including thrombosis and many other things. Mm -hmm. and, and we still haven't, you know, even had much in the way of success in 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 that conversation. Yeah. And then, if you remember back to two thousand and nine, here in the UK as well, there was another uh, swine flu uh, scare, mm -hmm. and there was actually a, quite an attempt to sort of inoculate a large percentage of the population. And quite a few healthcare workers, even in the UK, actually were inoculated with 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 a, a vaccine. And I think quite a few of them got. I think it was a narcolepsy. Um, so there was actually uh, adverse reactions. Some people are probably still suffering those adverse reactions today. Mm. So that's just two previous examples in the last forty-five years or so. So it's not like it's never happened before. This yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so they 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 saw the threat of a pandemic and wildly overreacted. Yep. Okay, well, you know, at least we'd never do that these days. Um, but, but like, oh, right, okay, so I, I am old enough to remember when all of these stup all of these adverse reactions, they're now admitted, but are, you know, we, we don't know the extent to which they're, like, the reporting is accurate. We have to say that for, you know, posterity, because we don't. But, we have these adverse reactions, like, but they they exist, like they've been like accepted and admitted by the gov like the governments of the world and by the the, the companies administering the vaccines. So, um, I'm old enough to remember when people's periods being disrupted was a conspiracy theory and dangerous yeah. misinformation. I'm old enough to remember when 
um, DVTs and and clots were a dangerous conspiracy theory. It shouldn't be shouldn't be listened to because it's misinformation. I am old, like I'm old enough to remember when the vaccines were 95% effective and stopped transmission completely. I'm old enough to remember, and you know the list goes fucking on. And I, I I'm old enough to remember when it was two doses and that was going to give you complete protection. I'm old enough to remember when the third boat booster was or so the third dose was all you needed and now they're talking about four in in america and they've tried it in israel and germany have, have mentioned this is like all these things can continue to be conspiracy theories because i'm fucking running out you know yeah, right. i haven't got many left that's not just like the new world order <laughs> you know yeah. you know and 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 then yeah i did yeah we should probably wrap this up before i go full klaus schwab but you know that guy is creepy as fuck, and and I yeah, yeah. Let's let's wrap this up because it's ne- nearly two hours, and I'm sure people are probably if they're listening um, sick of us. But um, before before we finish, um, if there's anyone that uh, disagrees or has serious contentions with anything we have said here, please let me know. Please, I want to know where Jonathan was wrong. Yeah, and me too <laughs> as well. You know my my website. Uh, is alltherisks.com my email address is available there as well so if anyone has any other thoughts you know i'm all i'm all for that you know i i love discussing things i believe in talking i believe in uh debate discussion it's what we've been sorely uh missing you know there's nothing there's no conversation that i'm not particularly uh prepared to have you know i at the at the end of the day right now you know we already have these jabs available my argument is it you know we've had well over a year now of serious marketing of these products you know the airwaves are in support of them Mm. every broadcaster on the on the on the channels you know every bit of power of the state and of soft power is essentially behind this Mm. so someone who's you know asking some questions and giving some data is in a very uh sort of quiet position already um how it can be a threat to to people i i don't know to just Mm -hmm. to discuss it and i would also ask people if if you're a person who maybe feels that you owe a lot to the vaccine for example just remember as well that what it was like for people who have experienced an adverse reaction whose life has been transformed and changed who is actually speaking for for them and who is uh, telling their story mm. and i do get those messages from people who maybe have experienced something and many of them would be um let's just say pro-vax you know mm. they're the people who who took it maybe okay, yeah. maybe they really wanted to have it right mm. and maybe so imagine how disappointed they feel mm. if uh they did their bit as they felt was was for the best mm. suffered an adverse reaction and now believing that the scientific process is going to sort of uh spring into life mm-hmm. in other words debate discussion uh, think about things, uh, do the risk benefit analysis, and it doesn't happen. You know, mm. They're not um, got many people sort of giving them a voice. So I just ask people to bear that in mind as well. If they have a different opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Jonathan, I want to thank you. Uh, YouTube, you know, remember that the censors are never on the right side of history. And hopefully this remains online. <laughs> Thanks very much, man. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.